these uh, these parables, and so we were, we were doing this series on the parables, and we were just asking ourselves, what is Jesus really saying, and what are the things that we've usually thought he's saying, and are those the same thing? And so we're, we're trying to, to make sure that we have a really honest, really good way of reading scripture, a way that we, we remove the thoughts that we had before, and we try to just focus on what God's trying to tell us. And so we were wrapping that up last week, and we were wrapping it up with the parable of the Samaritan, and, and basically the parable of Samaritan is forcing us to ask ourselves, right, who is my neighbor? And, and the answer is those Samaritans, right? And so whoever those Samaritans are, there's your answer. That's who your neighbor is. And, and as I was thinking this through, I, I always had planned on wrapping up the parables series with the parable of the Samaritan. And then I started thinking, so if that person is my neighbor, how then should I treat my neighbor? So the, the following question is, Okay, so, so that's my neighbor, so what do I do with my neighbor? And so that's going to be kind of what we're going to be doing this month. The entire month of November, we're going to be asking ourselves, what did hospitality look like in the Old Testament? How did people assume Jesus meant when he said to treat your neighbor such and such ways? So here we go. So last week, the parable of the Samaritan forced us to ask, who is my neighbor? So first, before we get to that, before we get to hospitality in the Old Testament, we have to ask ourselves one more further layer of our discussion of the Samaritan, right? So if you want to turn with me to Luke chapter 4, and remember, we talked a little bit about Luke in the very beginning. The beginning of Luke chapter 1, he says this letter is to Theophilus. Remember, Theophilus is a Greek word, a Greek name, and it means God lover, and so the idea here is this is to non-Jewish people. So this gospel is for the non-Jews. And then we saw the genealogy, and and Luke traces uh, Jesus' genealogy to Adam. And so the whole implication there, this is the good news for all people for all time. And one of the things that I even forgot, one of the layers of that interpretation, is Luke also wrote the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is all about how this gospel spread to the entire Gentile world, the whole known world at the time, and how this gospel got to all those people out there. And so... So Luke is making a very intentional point throughout this. This is the gospel for all people in the world. This is sent to everyone everywhere. This is good news for everyone. And so Theophilus may very well have been one person, but it also could have been a generic term for just God lover. And so so we saw that, and so we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 4 for some added context for why the parable of the Samaritan mattered to the people. So Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through the wide, the whole countryside. He was teaching in the synagogues, and everyone praised him. So he's having a good run of it, right? He went up to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read. So frequently when you'd stand up to read, you'd also do a little teaching with that. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And and this is an important line right here. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. And so if Jesus had just stopped there, he would have come out ahead of this whole thing, right? This would have been a really good first sermon. (laughs) He He would have knocked it out of the park. People would have said, hey, great job on the way out of synagogue. 
and they would have got him extra coffee and uh, maybe slipped him envelopes of denarii, I don't know. But, but so, so Jesus is in this great spot, and he's, he's had a really good opening to his public career of teaching, right? But then he does something else. <laughs> Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. And this is when things got a little off the rails for Jesus, right? All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. This is always a story I chuckle at a little bit. We're going to be looking at two of them that I laugh at. But I, Frequently what happens, I don't know if I've told you guys this before, but between my seat and this stage, I, I generally forget everything that I'm planning to say. <laughs> and then I get up here and most of the time it's fine. Sometimes I still forget. But most of the time when I'm thinking worst case scenarios up here, I'm not thinking everyone's going to grab me, take me to a cliff, and try to throw me off. <laughs> And, and so this is just horrific. <laughs> if you've ever done any public speaking, I mean, this, this is a scary thought because the truth is that you could say some things that really make people angry, and Jesus did, and he did that a lot. And so the question I think we have to ask when we're reading this is why were they so furious? And, and this is one of those that we, we kind of skate over the terms, right? I don't know if you're like me, but when I read proper nouns and I don't know what they are, I just ignore it, basically. <laughs> so Zarephath, I'm like, all right, whatever, that's a place that I don't care about. So then I just go on. But the people that were hearing this for the first time, they knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. They knew exactly where this place was, and, and this meant something to them. So when Jesus says, physician, heal yourself, he's talking exactly about what his people would have been thinking. They would have looked at the needs in their own nation, and they would have said, why did Elijah go to these other people? Why did Elisha go to these other people? We needed their help. And Jesus is pointing that out in a way that is relevant to the story of the Samaritan, right? So, why were they so mad? Why would Elijah take care of a foreign widow when we have widows in need right here? This cuts right to it, doesn't it? This is a hard question. I think a lot of us still struggle with this today, right? But I think the scripture gets to that point. I think it gets to why Elijah would do that. So, first of all, to truly understand, we have to go back, way back, 1 Kings chapter 17. If you want to turn with me. Now, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe, that's where Tishbites are from, in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. It's a pretty good gig being a prophet of God, right? Ravens just bring you stuff. It's pretty neat. 
So he did, the, he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kareth Ravine east of the Jordan and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and, beet, bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath, where he came to the town gate. A widow was there gathering sticks. He called out to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so that I might have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. So he's kind of a demanding prophet. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid, go home and do as you have said, but first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her, so there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse, finally stopped breathing. The woman said to Elijah, What did you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my, my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? And he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. So this is an interesting story that is kind of dropped right in the middle of Kings, right? We think about the glamorous stories in Kings a lot of times, and Elijah on Mount Carmel. We think about Elijah and the, uh, God speaking to him. He doesn't come in the, the fury. He doesn't come in the rain, the storm. He comes in a quiet voice, but, but a lot of times we don't think about this voice. And so to understand this, uh, I think this is a good synopsis. Elijah broke down barriers before Jesus made it cool. So Elijah was looking outside of the nation of Israel for people that needed to know God, before Jesus uh, brought that onto the scene in full force. So that's kind of the minor theme here. So the first question is, where is Zarephath? As you all know, your Middle Eastern geography, you all know exactly where it is. But a couple of us don't. So here's a pretty bad, <laughs> pretty bad map here. But the blue area is the northern kingdom. That's Israel. So if you can see the little words and the little dots above that in the little tan area still, Zarephath would be in that area. So the northern kingdom still existed. The northern kingdom had not been destroyed yet. And these towns up to the north there, they, these were pagans. These were people that Israel would not have associated with. These were people that they thought were the worst of the worst, and probably they were right, right? And so, so Elijah went to that place. He went there to get away from a lot of what was going on in Israel. Israel at the time 
had a really terrible king by the name of Ahab, and he had married a woman named Jezebel, and they led a lot of idol worship, and we're going to talk more about that in a minute. But Zarephath is up there, and so if you've never heard of it, now you have heard of it, and that's where Zarephath is. It's outside of the borders of Israel. So, next question is, who did the people of Zarephath worship? They did not worship Yahweh, the Lord God, that we would consider the God of the Old Testament. They did not worship him. So who did they worship? Well, complicated, right? So there is a term that is used frequently in the Old Testament, Baal, Baal, depending on how you want to pronounce it. And interestingly, a lot of times I really care about pronunciation. In this case, I really don't. So, so you can say Baal, you can say Baal. The Hebrew would have been Baal. There's not really a long A sound in the Hebrew most of the time. So Baal, uh, and, and this means Lord or owner. So this is kind of a generic term. And, and it, it would be a lot like God in our language today. A lot of times we capitalize the G on God, and that means the Christian God. But we also use lowercase g for Greek gods or for um, God of thunder or whatever else you're going to talk about, right? And, and so this was also kind of a generic term. And so in some ways people would say, well, I worship Baal or Baal. But in other ways they would use this interchangeably for other gods like Marduk or Ashtaroth or things like that. And so this could be a confusing term because we don't ever use it, right? <laughs> Has anybody used this word lately? I, I haven't. So, so Baal, Baal, was, was one of these gods that was competing with Yahweh in the Old Testament. The interesting thing about Baal is that Baal was frequently called the chaos god or the god of storms, the god of rains. And so what is happening at the beginning of this very story? We see that Elijah takes this message, right? There will not be rain until Lord God, the Lord Yahweh, declares it. So he is making a purpose statement that it's on between Baal and God, right? And Elijah is saying God's not going to allow any rain. So if Baal is really God, then he's going to have to bring the rain. And what do we see happens? There's drought, right? So Elijah is making a statement at the very beginning of this story. He's saying there's not the Lord God of Israel, Yahweh, he is the Lord of God. He is the Lord in charge of rain and storms. And he's saying there's not going to be any rain. So the Baal worshipers would have been confronted with this, right? And they would have said, well, Baal's in charge of that. And so then they're in this moment, right? In Zarephath, they worshiped Baal. So when Elijah goes up there, he's going into enemy territory. <laughs> this is an interesting part of that, right? So one of the major themes in the Old Testament is this complete battle between Baal and Yahweh. It is back and forth, right? It seems like the people of Israel don't ever know who they want to worship. Do we want to worship Baal? Do we want to worship the Lord God? Do we want to worship Yahweh? And, and this is one of the major themes we see run throughout the Old Testament. And, and the question is, will they worship the things of this world, or will they worship the creator of those things? And that's the, the contest that we see going on in the Old Testament. So, first, first point of my three-point sermon <laughs> It is okay, it is good to ask if you need hospitality. So Elijah is, is in this place of Zarephath. He's in this place, this place behind enemy lines, this place where they worship Baal. And he goes to somebody who worships Baal and he says, hey, can I have some water? Can I have something to eat? And so one of the things that we do a lot of times in, in the modern Christian world is we think it's wrong to ask if you need help or that's shameful, or there's something, you shouldn't do that, you shouldn't admit whenever you need help, but, but Elijah here, the prophet of God, the very first thing he does is he goes to his enemy, <laughs> this woman who worships Baal, and he asks for help. And, and I think this is already hugely counter-cultural, counter-world. He goes to somebody that he shouldn't be asking, and he says, hey, can I have something to drink? 
And then he says, hey, can I have something to eat? And I, I kind of like, so I have kind of a dark sense of humor. I kind of like the lady saying, uh, I'm going to make some bread and then we're going to die. I think that's kind of funny, but I, I can understand why people wouldn't think that's funny. But I kind of think it's funny. So, so I think she's got a, a pretty good sense of humor. <laughs> Maybe not. But, but I always laugh about that a little bit because I'm like, oh, that, she's, really, she's really honest with this stranger, right? But, but Elijah, first, the first thing about hospitality to me is this recognition that it is okay to ask for hospitality. And, and, and so one of the things that I want to undermine in that is like, we don't have to be ashamed that we need things sometimes. This is the, the essence of Christian grace, is that we all need grace from one another. And it is important, it is necessary that we ask for that. Second thing, this is one of those preliminary skirmishes on the way to Mount Carmel. So we all know the story of Mount Carmel, right? Elijah calls out all the prophets of Baal, all the prophets of Baal, and he says, hey, we're going to have a showdown. We're all going to meet up on Mount Carmel, and, and you all know how the story goes, but basically, Elijah says, you guys build a fire pit, and if Baal is boss, he'll send fire down on that fire pit, right? And, and so they pray, and they cut themselves all day, and Elijah's throwing jokes at him. He's saying, maybe your God's going to the bathroom, right? That's in the Old Testament, and, and he's saying, what, what's going on, guys? All day long, these prophets of Baal are trying to get fire to come down. Finally, at the end of it, Elijah goes, and he dumps all this water on it, which is another kind of contest between the Lord Yahweh and this water God that they worship. So, so then Elijah offers a simple prayer. Boom. Fire lights the whole thing up. This is kind of the, this is kind of the climax of this battle between Yahweh and, and Baal, Baal. But this is a preliminary skirmish on the way to that. This is kind of a war between Yahweh and Baal for this woman's heart, right? For this widow of Zarephath. And the question is, who will she pledge allegiance to? And so throughout this, Elijah goes and asks her for help, and, and he's asking for hospitality, and, and she's giving it to him, and her flower's never running out, and that's miraculous on its own, right? But then her son dies. So Elijah's in this moment, and he says, Lord God, let me heal this woman. And in that moment, he heals her, and she makes this proclamation that the Lord Yahweh is God. And this is the third point. This woman, both in her words and in her choice of hospitality, proclaims Yahweh, the true Lord of life. She says it right here. The woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is truth. So this preliminary skirmish was for the heart and mind of this woman. And so this is setting up a real dilemma for her, right? And so the question is, the battle between Baal and Yahweh is not over today, right? So what does it look like today? If Baal is this fertility God, if Baal is this God of wealth, and, and good things, then what does it look like between Baal and Yahweh today? It looks a lot like, will we value our bank accounts over the work of God in this world? The real amazingness of this woman is she gave to Elijah, she gave to God from her lack. She had very little. And her trust, the way that Yahweh won that battle, was because she gave some of her very little to a faithful prophet of God. And this is the same place that the battle occurs today. And it occurs in our hospitality. And, and, and so the question is, when we find those Samaritans, those people in our world, the question is, how do we treat them? And, and today I want to encourage you to start thinking about that. Do we treat them like even this woman from Zarephath? She welcomed Elijah. She had very little, but she still shared it with him. Or do we treat ourselves like prophets of Baal, where we say, if we have enough, I guess we can share. But if we don't have enough, then it's off the table. That's the real place that this battle is occurring today. And that's what I want to encourage you with in this parable. So 
I wanted to quote my friend, um, well, sorry. <laughs> much, much like the Jews in Luke, we often blame when someone can't help everyone. And this is one of those dialogues we have within ourselves, right? We come to this place and we say, well, I mean, I can't, I can't possibly help everyone. So we're like this widow and we see Elijah, but we think, well, but there's a lot of other hungry people out there. So, so I can't do anything because I can't help everyone. And I want to encourage you, my friend Rusty would always say this, do for the few what you wish you could do for all. Do for the few what you wish you could do for all. And this is the place where that contest between Baal and Yahweh is won. By us deciding, I'm going to do what I can, even though I can't do everything. And, and I texted him to say I was going to quote him, and he said, actually, that's an Andy Stanley quote. <laughs> but I said, hey, I'm the one talking. I'm going to give you credit for it. <laughs> so you do for the few what you wish you could do for the all. And that's one of the things that we're going to be trying to do as our community as we look at hospitality and, and, and so some of the ways we're trying to do that, we've intentionally tried to upgrade our coffee game. So we got those new cups. We're trying to have more quality coffee because we, one of the things we were talking about, it's such a small thing, right? But if somebody came to your home and, and you were like, well, I don't know, let me check in my garage if I have some coffee for you, that would not be very hospitable, right? <laughs> and, and one of the things we were evaluating is we were thinking, can we find some good higher quality coffee to share with people, to tell people we care about them? It's not a big deal. It's not the hugest deal in the world, but it does matter, right? And so what we're going to be trying to do is we're going to be trying to ask ourselves, what can we do for the few that we wish we could do for the all? And this is one of the first steps in hospitality. Throughout this whole month, we're going to be looking at what it would have meant to be hospitable in the Old Testament. What would the hearers of Jesus' parable the Samaritan, when he said, love your neighbor, what would they have understood as loving your neighbor? How would they have understood to be hospitable? So we're going to be looking at that in the Old Testament this, this month. So if you want to pray with me, we're going to wrap up. Lord Jesus, we are grateful that you did for us what you wish you could do for everyone. And Lord, we, we pray for those who don't know you, that are far from you. Pray that you would draw them close. Lord, we pray for us that we would intentionally seek out the ways we can do good, small things for people, things that matter. Lord, we love you. It's in your name I pray. Amen.